If you will turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We continue in our series called Ordinary Today. And we will be this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. Our keywords for our worshipers in training are hands, work, and quiet. There's a Dave Matthews Band song, and it's called Ants Marching. And here are the lyrics. Some of you probably know them. He says, he wakes up in the morning, does his teeth, bite to eat, and he's rolling. Never changes a thing. The week ends, the week begins. When all the little ants are marching, red and black, antennas waving, we all do the same. We all do it the same. Is that it? Is that all there is to life? Waking up, going through our routine day to day, going to work, marching around day by day like an army of ants. We're just trudging along, trying to get through the day, trying to end the week, trying to save up enough money so we can pay off our houses and retire. And then... Golf, tennis, television, naps. That's what the world is trying to sell to us, right? In some ways, that's what the world is trying to rescue us from. You don't want to live a boring, go to work and work hard every day kind of life, do you? Break free, step out, get rich, set your own course, chart your own destiny. But please, never, ever, ever be ordinary. We've talked about this through our series called Ordinary, and we've looked at several things God calls us to as his people in this life. We looked at the really practical, normal things that we're called to pursue day by day in our Christian lives. Things like loving one another with brotherly affection, striving to serve faithfully as the body of Christ, We've considered how all of life, the good times and the bad times, are part of God's providential working in our lives. He has us where we are at the time that we're there to bring about his greatest ends, our good and his glory. Whether we're experiencing the greatest seasons of life or we've plummeted to the lowest of lows, God has us there to teach us, to grow us, to mold us and shape us and conform us to greater Christ-likeness. And in the midst of all things, we talked last Lord's Day that we are called to be content in our circumstances, to recognize that God is providentially at work in all that we are doing, in every circumstance, and even though we might find it difficult, even though we may struggle, even though we may be suffering, we're called to live in contentment whether we're being brought high or low, whether there's peace or a storm, we're called to live lives that glorify God through our contentment and our circumstances. And that's a challenging thing for people like us. We've been trained since a very young age, all of us, that restlessness is normal, that we ought to push and to push and to push for bigger and greater and stronger. That's not the Christian life. Today we're going to consider another aspect of what God calls us to 
in ordinary Christian life. And it's found in the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. Beginning this morning in chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, three people are mentioned as senders of this letter Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They had visited Thessalonica together. They were together in Corinth probably around the time of 49 to 51 AD. Early in Paul's 18-month stay in Corinth during his second missionary journey. That's probably when this letter was written. Now, the church at Thessalonica was a church of Christians, and they were living in the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a key north-south trade route. So as you might expect, Thessalonica was flourishing with with new ventures and new goods and trade and philosophy. There were always new products and people and ideas. The city was religiously committed to the Greco-Roman pantheon and the imperial cults and maybe even some of the Egyptian cults. There was in the midst also a very sizable Jewish population. And then, of course, there were the Christians in the midst of it all. And so Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians to encourage the believers as their friend. He's commending them, he's encouraging them to continue in the way of life that they have adopted as Christians. It wasn't easy for them to be unstained from the world. The culture was so opposed to God's commands. It it was very likely much worse than what we are accustomed to here in the South. It would be more similar probably to seeking to be faithful to God in our daily lives in a place like Manhattan. It'd be tough. Everything all around you clamoring for your attention. Things never seem to stop. New ideas being presented. People always seeking to push the boundaries of what's acceptable in the culture. It's a melting pot of of different cultural ideas and expressions. So it was a place that could be a very hostile environment for Christians. So Paul is encouraging them as he writes. And as he writes, he's, he's writing to protect the church against false beliefs. One of those things he's talking about is these false ideas about the return of Christ and the full consummation of the kingdom and what that would look like. Now, there were false teachers, as you can imagine, in a place like that. They were seeking and claiming that what Christians believed about Christ's return was a lie or that it was insufficient. So Paul was seeking to correct these ideas. So as you can imagine, in the midst of it all, Paul wants to answer an important question. How do we, as Christians living in this place, go about our daily lives? What should they look like? What's a Christian life going to look like in Thessalonica or in that matter, in Savannah or Rincon? Or New York City. And that's what chapter 4 is about. What it means to live a life that pleases God. How can God's people walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? 
And we could certainly spend time looking at the entire chapter this morning, but I really want us to focus our attention on these few verses, and specifically verses 11 and 12. So here's what Paul is doing. He is commending the church for doing one of the very things we've talked about a few weeks ago, showing brotherly love or affection for one another within the body of Christ. He tells them that they were doing that very thing, so he really doesn't need to write to them about it, but he wants to encourage them to continue in this way, to continue to walk in brotherly love. And the language Paul uses here implies a love that is shared among those who are born together in the same line of blood, that they are brothers by birth. It's the same language the New Testament repeatedly uses to talk about the family of God. We are brothers and sisters It's not just words that we use. It's not Baptist language. And it's not what you call someone just because you don't know their first name. It's a truth about how we are united to one another by virtue of having the same father and having the same elder brother, Jesus. We are brothers and we are sisters. So Paul says he doesn't even think it's necessary to write to the Thessalonians about this grace because it's so evident in their lives And yet, he wants to encourage them to continue on. It's in their lives because they have been taught by God to love one another. In other words, although Paul surely taught this to them while he was in Thessalonica, it was God the Holy Spirit who has taught them and who has carried them along living in love with one another. Everything good comes from God. So our praise should always be directed to him. So what was happening in the broader area of Macedonia is that the the Thessalonian church was situated in the natural center. So there's all of these churches in Macedonia, and the Christians were using their influence to bless the body of Christ throughout the surrounding area. And so effective was their love for the brethren that they were getting a reputation for it. Now just imagine that. What if our reputation... As a church was that, they have an amazing love for one another. They have an amazing love for the brethren. People would look at us and they would be a part of us and experience what we do together and say, I have never seen people who love each other in the way that they do. When, When we see each other, not just as fellow church members or friends, but when we begin to see each other as brothers and sisters, a lot of things change. We're not so willing to leave one another. We're not so willing to stay at odds with one another. And we are always willing to give ourselves for one another. We're family. We're not just Sunday family. We're all day, every day family. And a church that loves one another, knowing their family, is a church that gains a reputation for loving one another with brotherly affection. So much so that it could be said of a people like the Apostle Paul would commend, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Effingham County. John 13, 34 records the words of Jesus. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. This is the calling of God upon the body of Christ. This is who we are to be. 
This is what we are to be, loving one another with brotherly affection and gaining a reputation for it. But notice, Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to rest on their reputation. He urges them to continue moving forward in love. The end of verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Imagine, how many many churches are known for this? What kind of reputation is this? What a wonderful thing to be thought of. And we must all confess, even if we appear to make great progress in our Christian growth and affections for the body of Christ, we must still desire to become even greater. We need the urging of the Apostle Paul. Keep loving, keep pushing, keep gaining this reputation. Elsewhere, he exhorts the church and he says, don't give up on doing good to one another. Continue to serve the body of Christ and don't shrink back. Well, Paul moves on then into verses 11 and 12, and he calls the Thessalonians to diligence in their lives and in their labors. He begins in verse 11 with this. He says, aspire to live quietly. Another way to say that is to make it your ambition to live quietly. Now, most people would hear that and say, way to set the bar high, Paul. But really, this is no small thing at all. This quiet living is important enough for him to include it in both of his letters to the Thessalonian Christians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, the apostle writes, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. But it's difficult to make a big deal in the world when we're living quietly, isn't it? A quiet life set apart from the attention of the world. If we, if we follow these directives, there are actually things we would have to be quiet about. We would need to step back into the shadows of this world and, and keep things to ourselves for a change. But this is all part of what it means to be content in the ordinary, to live ordinary lives the way that God has designed us to live them. We're quietly going about our business, minding our business. And I assure you, especially with the constant pull of things like social media awaiting us to announce everything to the world, this isn't an easy task. But that's why Paul commands it of us. Now, I've I've read a lot of different things about what others say about these verses here, and it seems this constant thread among them that they... They all want to say that we need to understand that Paul is not asking us here to stop being bold individuals in our witness. I wanted to stop and ask a question. When does Paul start asking us to do that? Well, hang with me here and don't shut me off. I want, explain, I want to explain what I mean here. Have you noticed in reading the Bible that even though we see the disciples preaching before hostile crowds and being beaten and even executed, it's never actually commanded of us in the Bible to be bold in our witness. Now, is there any question in our minds that in the first century that the Christians who were being beaten and stoned to death and sawn in two, that they would need anyone to tell them 
to live quiet lives. I think they probably would have uh, been very content to do that. And yet, Paul is here saying, live quietly. We would, in fact, probably expect that in light of their circumstances, that Paul would be pushing them at every turn to say, be more bold, be more bold, live on the edge, and go and die for the gospel. Well, he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't tell them to live as missionaries. He doesn't tell them to do evangelism. At every encounter they make with people they see in public, he tells them to make it their ambition to live quietly. Now, I already hear objections. I can, you're transferring them to me. Aren't we supposed to evangelize? What about the Great Commission? What about giving an answer for the hope that's within us? Great questions. We're going to deal with all of those in a few weeks, so you have to come back to church. But I want to say this today. The Great Commission is a call for the church to fulfill a mission calling utilizing the gifts within the church given to every individual member of that church working together as a whole body of Christ. So now maybe you see why the commands to love one another with brotherly affection and to be committed completely and fully to the body of Christ is so important because we function together as a body, not as a bunch of individuals doing our own thing. We are the bones and the tendons and the ligaments. And if we're not working together, the body is ineffective. It's useless. In other words, here's my point. Your gifts may not be commensurate with this idea that you have to sit down and have evangelistic conversations with every person that you meet. And I want to tell you, that is okay. Given the amount of emphasis that's placed on evangelism in the church today, it really is remarkable to me that there is an actual lack of imperatives to do that very thing in the Bible, and yet we have a very clear call here to live quietly. Now again, don't hear me wrong. This does not preclude evangelism by any means. But maybe we should do more than glance at these calls to live quietly. Paul calls the Thessalonians to live quietly, but he doesn't say, and go and be bold and boisterous in your witness. Now, we often call people to be bold and to not worry about offending people, and we're prone to think and say that those who do aspire to live quietly are carnal and disobedient. But Paul calls them to a life that we would look at and say, oh, they're just kind of living ordinary lives. And so often our tendency is to call one another to something quite different than that. Now, I know this might sound strange to you, and, and hopefully you'll be here when I spend the entire Lord's Day on this issue in a few weeks, but, but here's what I want us to think about. We need to seriously consider what it is to live quietly in our ordinary lives. A quiet life is an ordinary life, and a life that the world looks, like, looks at and says, that's boring. 
Now, I admire the longing that we all have to do big and important things for Jesus. I, too, have that desire, and I know many of you do as well. So here's my suggestion, and here's where maybe we see this coming together. Figure out what your spiritual gifts are, and then use them. Don't say, well, my spiritual gift is hospitality. I know, I'm very hospitable. But I never show hospitality to anybody. Well, then what kind of body are we? Nobody's evangelizing. Nobody's showing hospitality. We are an ineffective body. Instead, the one with gifts of evangelism evangelizes. The one with gifts of hospitality shows hospitality. And then you see the body of Christ functioning in the way that God has designed it. And we do that with great love for one another, with great affection for the body. We begin to see these things develop. True evangelism actually happens instead of just talking about it. True hospitality is shown. We'll get on that more in a few weeks. With all that said then, what does it look like to live a life in which we aspire? We make it our ambition to live quietly. First, we need to wrap our minds around the fact that this idea is quite the opposite of what most of the world thinks and the way much of the church goes about business today. Between tabloids and the internet and social media, we are drowning in a culture of celebrity and self-promotion. It's a level of narcissism that has reached an unbelievable height. In fact, the, the new generation has been called by sociologist Generation Me. It's all about me. We're anxious to tell everyone what we love, what we're fans of, what we have done, what, uh, what we will uh, be doing. We're uh, quick to assert what we like and what we don't like, and we complain that there's no down thumb on Facebook because everyone needs to know, I don't like this. Not to mention, we need to let everyone know who we know. And the louder we are and the more people hear us about what we know, we believe that we cannot just go about our business without everybody knowing it. Why? Well, it's our flesh. We are, we are suffering from the poison coursing through our veins that says, I need to be somebody in this world. Adam and Eve should have just been quiet when they faced the serpent, but they had to try and talk to him and reason with him and find a way to be like God. You know, walking away is one way to be quiet. But this world we live in is a world of protest. Public denunciations, PR campaigns, that's what defines us. But we as Christians need to deal with our tendency to not see a quiet, ordinary life as legitimately spiritual and it comes from pride, a pride that is betrayed when we cannot be quiet about what we've done and what we have suffered and what we have seen ever. Now, something else for us to consider about a quiet life is this. This is not just about volume. It's about tone and spirit. In other words, it's not only what we don't say. It's all of life we're talking about here a life of contentment, a life of more thought about our speech, more thought before we speak. 
Living quietly is a life so happy with the attention of God that the attention of the world is not needed and rarely is it even enjoyed. Fifteen minutes of fame, that is far too short for those who enjoy the security and fellowship of the King of Kings. It's not a vow of silence. It's not a call to never say anything or to never express opinions or convictions in any circumstance, but it is to say that we need to resolve to be okay with not being heard and not being seen and not being noticed. It is grounded in the assurance of the notice of our Creator. God notices us. What more do I need? The quiet life. Just like the ordinary life, it's not weak. It's the strength of the lamb who stood silently before his slaughterers. Now, Paul ties all of this call to making it our ambition to live quietly. He ties it all to work, to vocation. He says that one is to mind their own affairs and to work with their hands. John Calvin writes this, We commonly see that those who intrude into other people's affairs create a great disturbance and make trouble for others as well as for themselves. The best way to lead a tranquil life is for all to be absorbed with the duties of their own calling, carrying out the duties given them by the Lord and devoting themselves to these things. The farmer concentrates on his rural activities. The workman busily carries out his labors, and so on. And in this way, everyone keeps within their own boundaries. But as soon as people turn away from this, everything is thrown into confusion and disorder. So, a way we can think about this in a few short thoughts. Aspire to live quietly. Be peaceful. Calm down. Be content in the unremarkable and be content in being unnoticed. Be normal. Mind your own business. Don't get involved in things that are not your concern. Work with your hands. Take care of yourself. Don't be lazy. Don't consider work to be something beneath you. And all of this ties back to this idea of brotherly affection. If we're quietly minding our own affairs not seeking our own fame, not seeking to be recognized, but dutifully and joyfully striving in our lives to work hard with our hands, we are much less prone to things like gossip and slander. When we don't know all the details of the latest gossip conversations, we aren't as prone to be in those conversations that quickly turn sour. Instead, we're much more willing to serve with the interest of others in mind instead of our own. We're much more willing to show brotherly affection regardless of the circumstances. And Paul all brings this together in verse 12, and he says, this is the kind of life that displays the power of God to Christians and non-Christians alike. Your life in this way will be God-honoring. We're, we're not impressive to others if we're lazy or if we're busy bodies, or if we're unloving, or if we don't have self-control. The Lord expects us to live lives that are very ordinary. 
Again, John Calvin comments, nothing is more offensive than a person who is an idol good for nothing, who benefits neither himself nor anyone else, and who appears to have been born just to eat and drink. The outcome of a hard-working, quiet way of life will be used of God to win the respect of outsiders. Are you a Christian? Then you should be the hardest worker at your job. You recognize that your employer is paying for your time and your effort, so you don't want to rob them of that pay. That's theft. And you wouldn't dare want to steal from them. So when we are diligent to quietly work with our hands, those who do not believe in Christ will respect the way that we live, and they will more readily spread a good report about the Christians they know. You know, a great deal of harm is done to the gospel because excited Christians neglect their daily work because they view that as less important than their spiritual studies and their evangelistic conversations and their apologetics ministry on Facebook. When you're at work, whatever that work is, you need to be working. We should behave according to the scriptures and so not prejudice our cause in the eyes of the world. What you do day by day, whether it's in an office or in your very own home, is a spiritual undertaking that God calls you to do with all diligence to be the best worker in your office, to be the hardest working mother on the block when it comes to raising your children and caring for your home. Earlier this year, one of my grandfathers died, and I was in Iowa to preach his funeral when it was 30 below out, and we are able to sit with him for the last few hours of his life. And a few days before I'd gotten there, one of the, one of the men in my family had sat down with him, and he, he asked him, he was still talking at the time, do you have any regrets in your life? And my grandfather was 87 years old when he died, and he's been a Christian since he was a teenager. He fought in World War II. He was one of the most faithful churchmen I've ever known in my life. He spent his entire life working his farm and serving God's people in his church. Day after day, week after week, tinkering in his garage, plowing his fields, planting seeds, tending to animals, reading the Bible with his family, and honoring the Lord's Day every single week. Other than the occasional road trip to visit family members and countless trips to the VA hospital, that was his life until he was too broken to go outside the house at all. So he was asked, do you have any regrets? And he wasn't talking a whole lot those last few weeks of his life, but he had enough to look over to my uncle and say, none. That's all he said, None. Well, later that week, I was there, and my uncle just couldn't stop talking about it. Unlike my grandfather, my uncle is not a Christian. He spends all of his time working to get enough money to spend as much as he can on his weekends. His work is a means for more fun and more entertainment and nothing else. So he couldn't believe that a man could spend 87 years of life doing virtually the same thing every day of life, week after week, working quietly and working hard with his hands, completely unknown to the world, and have no regrets. But he was content. He was thankful for all that God had given him and he wanted to be a good steward of it and he was. And so much so 
that when we came to his funeral, the man who runs the garbage dump showed up because he knew my grandfather and he knew his testimony that he was a man who loved God and worked hard. He didn't see himself as an ant marching around day by day without a purpose. He saw the beauty of the ordinary Christian life that can be lived in relative obscurity. And in the end, look over it all because he's in Christ and say, no regrets, none. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we can live with one another in brotherly affection as a people who constantly and consistently employ our spiritual gifts, quietly and diligently going about our daily labors without this obsessive longing to be known for who we are and what we do. What kind of reputation do we have as a body of Christ? Is it that we love one another? What kind of reputation do we have as a people in our community? Loud and obnoxious, always trying to be known? Or quiet and hardworking, diligent in our labors as to please God and to work hard for our employers? In our work, we're usually in the world. Most of us rub shoulders day by day with unbelievers. And if we do our work in reliance on God's power, according to his pattern of excellence, and thus doing it for his glory, we will build bridges for the gospel so that we can cross with these people that they might come with us to be saved. When Paul writes that we will be walking properly before outsiders, he's tying this knot between the way we do our work and the attitude that unbelievers will have toward the gospel that has transformed us. So while you may may not be gifted to sit with someone and tell them the gospel from A to Z, you can say, I work hard because God calls me to work hard. And I want to be faithful to him by doing what he asks me to do. Because all of my life is to be lived unto him and I want to live without any regrets. God's will in this age is that his people be scattered like salt in all sorts of legitimate vocations. And as long as we are physically and mentally able, we should work in reliance upon his power according to his pattern of excellence and for his glory. In this way, God wills for us to provide for our own needs and beyond this for the needs of those who cannot provide for their own. And when we enter our work in a spirit of humility, trusting in God, loving others, the truth of Christ will be adorned. And we will give evidence of this transforming power of the gospel in the lives of God's people. Now, for some of you here this morning, you cannot imagine a life lived quietly, a life out of the spotlight in pursuit of riches and fame. For some of you, it's because you're not a Christian. For others, it's because you're consumed by fleshly desires for which you need to repent. So two things. One, if you're not a Christian, I want to commend you to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He changes us completely. He gives us brotherly affection for other Christians. We are brought into a family, our true brothers and sisters that we will live with in love, seeking to outdo one another in love. I want to implore you to repent of your self-reliance, your self-sufficiency, to humble yourself to rely on God alone. 
The call on your life is to believe on Christ, the Son of the living God, who gave himself that his people might live. If you are a Christian and this idea of a quiet life, living and working diligently, if all of this is sort of repulsive to you, I want to consider the pride of your own heart. No attention you will get in this life will come close to the beauty of the attention shown in Christ to God's people who has died for us, purchasing us from a life of darkness, bringing us into a life of light. Be content to be normal. Find joy in the ordinary. Because it's in these things that the Lord God is most powerful in our lives. It's in our quiet diligence to all that God has called us to that the voice of his truth speaks the loudest to the world. In his great goodness and kindness, in our weakness, his strength and power is made most evident.